Maybe someday in the future we'll have intro music, but until we do, welcome to Window of Opportunity, a Stargate Rewatch podcast. I'm Carrie. I'm Rachel. And today we're talking about Stargate SG-1 Season 1, Episode 1, Children of the Gods. Yay! Yay! This is what we're doing with our quarantine. <laughs> because what else is there to do except rewatch 10 seasons of a sci-fi show from the late 90s and early 2000s? Exactly. <laughs> so before we get into the episode itself, Rachel, what's your history with like the Stargate franchise? Did you see the movie? What did you think of the series? How did you get into the series? Tell me everything. Oh, wow. My very own personal Stargate experience? Yes. Well, let's see. When I was a wee child, um, <laughs> I did watch the movie when I was little. And, you know, I am a Kurt Russell fan and I am a James Bader fan. I did like the movie at the time, but um, I did not appreciate it as much until I grew into the sci-fi nerd that I am today. So um, I did actually try to find it, to rewatch it, to, you know, incorporate that into our analysis of today's episode, and I couldn't find it anywhere. You mean so, you don't own it on, like, DVD and Blu-ray and VHS and, like, every conceivable media format? I did not. See? No appreciation for nerdiness as I am today, so... <laughs> it will live on in my memory until I rent it. <laughs> well, fantastic. It should be airing on the Sci-Fi Channel, you know, next week, maybe? <laughs> oh, of course. A week after we're doing this. Of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And then I was not introduced to the Stargate show until my very good friend Carrie said, hey, you should watch the show. And I said, okay. And I did. You mean I'm responsible for this? This is all my fault? Oh, yes. All right. I guess I can, I, I'll take that. That's fine. Do you like to um, tell your personal story with Stargate TV show and or movie and or movie yeah. TV show, then back to movie? Sure. Um, so I saw the movie in the theaters. Um, I was already on my way to becoming a, a sci-fi geek at that time because I have two older brothers who are into like Star Trek and all of that good stuff. And... I enjoyed it greatly. I was very entertained. I thought it was a wonderful story. And then I remember seeing an ad in the newspaper, an ad in the newspaper. That's how long ago the show was, people, um, that there was going to be a series about this movie. And I was like, oh, that's great. And then I saw it was on Showtime. I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'll never see it because we didn't have Showtime. Um, so I kind of just forgot about it, then moved out on my own into my first apartment, uh, got the sci-fi channel and it was just before season seven was going to start airing. Um, which for those that don't know, Stargate moved from Showtime to the sci-fi channel with season six. Um, so the first episode of Stargate SG-1 I actually ever saw was the first episode of season seven fallen, which if you've never seen it or you don't remember the very first thing that happens in that episode is you see Michael Shanks naked in a field. You said yes, please. How much more of this is there? I was like, sold. Uh, (laughs) I'm in. They got me with that one. Um, But then, you know, I watched the episode and I was like, this is really good. So I like went out and like bought all of the previous seasons on box sets and watched those. And then, you know, the sci-fi channel was airing it for like four hours a day. Uh, So I very quickly got caught up probably by like, mid-season seven, I, you know, watched all the previous six seasons and got myself caught up and was very, very thoroughly engrossed and in love 
with this TV show. And now here we are, I don't know, too many years later for me to want to count. And I'm doing a podcast about it because I still love it. Well, so question though. So you know yeah. how when you start a new TV show, it usually takes a little while for a TV show to kind of get into its groove on its own. Mm -hmm. So do you think you would have loved it as much had you started watching it from the beginning? Oh, that is a very interesting question. Um, I mean, I think so because, you know, going back and watching episode one, you know, even after having seen season seven, um, I was like, oh yeah, this is good. I like this. I like what they're doing. I thought it picked up really well from like where the movie had ended. I thought it was a good continuation of, you know, the movie that I had loved a lot, liked a lot, loved. Um, yeah, I think I would have. All right. So um, some of the segments that we have come up with for these episodes are what? So we have fun facts. Did you knows and other entertaining tidbits of information and the always popular I have questions where we will bring to you things that just don't make sense and need further explanation or exploration and maybe one of us could answer the question that the other has we'll find out and if we have no answers we're just gonna make it up yes and that'll be called fill in the gap <laughs> yes Fill in the gap. Yeah. So SG-1 started airing on July 27th, 1997 uh, on the Showtime network. And when it was originally picked up, it was actually picked up for two seasons out of the gate. So 44 episodes, like from when it got greenlit, which... Out of the gate. <laughs> out of the <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which was unusual for the time and is, you know, even more unusual now. Um, and then... The other unusual thing was that syndication was then allowed a mere six months later, where usually syndication is, you know, years after the TV show has stopped airing. Showtime decided to allow the Fox networks to syndicate the episodes six months after the original air date on Showtime, which I thought was interesting. And yeah, which makes it even more unusual that I didn't actually start watching the show until it came to the sci-fi channel. Because I didn't watch it because we didn't have Showtime. And I somehow never knew it was on Fox either. I don't know why. So, Children of the Gods. Uh, original air date, July 27, 1997. Uh, this episode was written by Jonathan Glasner and Brad Wright. And it was directed by Mario as a party. Uh, I don't know if those names mean anything to you, but they've been around for a while. Um, Way to go, guys. Yay. Uh, so the Wikipedia, just general episode summary, uh, when powerful aliens come through Earth's Stargate, Colonel Jack O'Neill returns to Abydos to retrieve Daniel Jackson, who has discovered that the alien transit system includes much more than the two planets. Because I do love that this show took on like the easiest segment possible for making a TV series from a movie that it was like the movie was about, oh, we've discovered this thing that takes us to another planet and we have an adventure. And then you get to the show and it's like, what? This thing goes other places? Other places? Sure, yeah. you must go there. <laughs> so that's where we are. Um, so at the end of the movie, you know, Daniel's left on Abydos. Jack and his team came back. And they blew up Ra and his spaceship above Abydos. Um, Jack is now in retirement. 
and the gate is like just sitting there. Uh, so when this episode starts, there's just sort of this group of Air Force members playing cards in the gate room, and the gate is covered by a large tarp of some sheet, and they apparently have no idea what's like under there. Did you get that impression? Because they're like, nobody ever comes down here. So it seems that they have no idea what it is they're guarding, if anything. It does. It seems a little bit odd to me, um, although it seemed very odd with the timing of it. Like if it's only supposed to take place a year later, mm-hmm. um, you think that they, you know, it wouldn't have been a forgotten thing that's like in a closet somewhere. But at the same time, I guess if it was so highly classified that nobody really knew about it, it could make sense. Yeah. Because what happened to the guards that were there when we went through the gate in the movie? Where are they? Why aren't they there? Exactly. So anyway, so then there's like an ominous rumbling and the tarp is like ripped away. And it honestly looks like beautiful the way they got the tarp to like, I don't know, get pulled off the gate and float through the air. Um, And everybody's like, oh, my God, what's happening? They immediately grab their guns because they're soldiers and that's what they do. Um. So they turn to face the spinny thing, as far as they know, and uh, we see a bunch of Jaffa with snakehead armor come through uh, the gate along with uh, a guy in gold armor. Uh, They say Kree a lot, which means a number of things, depending on the context you use it in. The one that gets referred to as Tilk takes the female airman that was there. Um, All of the other men are killed, unfortunately, along with uh, a couple of the Jaffa. And then another battalion of soldiers arrives along with uh, the new general who's in charge. And they see the guy's eyes glow, which we know is a symbol that this guy is a gold. Um, and they take the female airman with them through the gate. And the gate closes. And that is the cold open and the opening scene of Children of the Gods. So if you hadn't seen the movie, if you were just coming into this series as just, hey, that looks like a fun sci-fi series to watch, would this have been interesting enough to get you to keep watching I think so well because you know I it had been so long since I watched the movie when I was watching the show I was trying to remember you know how things left off and whatnot and I was thinking to myself like okay now that they're picking this story up are they doing a good enough job picking up where a story left off but also introducing people to this world because they're probably going to be getting an additional audience, mm-hmm. you know, other than people that loved the movie. And I do, I think they did a really good job introducing all the characters and creating some mystery and, and what is this thing and where is it going and who are these people? Um, I, I do think they did a really good job of it. I did notice some, some things in the show that like were very dated of the show of the time in the nineties that nowadays, if you put that on TV, it would just be like, Oh no, you can't. <laughs> You can't make that joke. <laughs> no. Yeah. You can't make that joke. You can't say that thing. No. Um, no. But for the time, I thought I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. So here's our first fun fact for this episode. In 2009, Brad Wright, who uh, wrote this episode, went back and re-edited this episode into a better version that is now referred to as Children of the Gods, The Final Cut. Uh, He sort of updated the music and some of the special effects. um, So they, things look a lot crisper and a lot cleaner. Uh, The music is a lot better. Um, And one of the things, 
How can it they is. Make it better? Well, they did it was this already weird... pretty epic. <laughs> yeah. But um the guy who wrote the music for the show, like they had, you know, a composer for the show, but when Showtime was putting this together, they took the score that that guy had done but overlaid music from the movie on it. So there's a few scenes that are just the music is sort of really bombastic and a lot more powerful and louder than he really wanted. Um, So he basically cut out all of the movie music and just left the stuff that was composed specifically for the show, Um, which I think really does help a lot. Um, Mm. But one of the things he mentioned on the commentary is that if he could have gone back and basically rewritten this, he would have completely redone this opening scene because he doesn't like that the show starts by introducing the villain and not the heroes. He would have written a way for us to introduce all of our heroes first before we met the villain. And when he said that, I was like, I never really thought about it like that. I'm like, that is interesting that we meet the villain before the heroes were usually that's not what happens usually introduced here here are your stars of your show and then something happens to introduce us to the villain that is interesting although if the villain hadn't arrived first then the heroes wouldn't have been needed i mean that's true because jack is retired daniel's still on abydos there would be no need to call carter in so yeah, yeah. So why? So what situations would they have been introduced in, like living their separate lives? I don't know. He unfortunately he didn't expand on that because they were, you know, commentating on what was happening, so they had to move on to the next thing. Um, mm. But yeah, that would have been interesting to see what, yeah, that may have been like. Uh, so then we move on to the credits, which is the old school crawl over the statue, which I think is supposed to be raw, which is interesting. Um, it it actually kind of reminds me of a lot of the credits now on like Netflix shows where it's just sort of like a slow crawl over a thing while like the names play with, you know, the music in the background. So it's kind over of interesting. an object until you yeah. realize what that object is. Yeah. Like the crown or something where it's, or like even like daredevil credits were very like, you know, blood dripping over things. And then it's like, Oh, it's a skull or, Oh, it's a crown. So it's kind of interesting how credits have maybe sort of cycled back to what they were in 1997. You know what that stuff reminds me of is um, whenever I see that, it reminds me of, oh, we made this intro before we actually shot any of the show to have footage of the intro. Or they hired a completely different production company to just do the intro that had absolutely nothing to do with the actual shooting of the show. (laughs) Therefore, they didn't have anything available. Yes, very true. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't remember when... The credits change. I guess we'll find out as we watch along. We'll be like, hey, that's the new credits with the, you know, pictures of the people as their name flashes on the screen. Um, so we can discuss that when we get to it. Um, okay, so post credits, um, we see a car pulling up into a driveway and a slow pan uh, up by the camera reveals a man on the roof who we learn is Colonel Jack O'Neill, retired, as he is very fond of saying. Uh, Major Samuels has come to take him to see General Hammond about the Stargate. We then move to exterior Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado. Uh, next fun fact. So Cheyenne Mountain is a real military base in Colorado. And the Stargate show actually had the blessing of the Air Force for this. Um, and the Air Force was very involved in like reviewing scripts to make sh- sure all of the military stuff was in line with 
I guess, what was would have actually been going on if the Stargate was a real thing. Um, and there were two Air Force generals as guest stars over the seasons, which we can discuss when we get there. Um, so I just think that's really cool that I don't know how often that happens where there's, you know, military shows or police shows that actually get the, you know, blessing and cooperation of the actual official uh, entity that the show is about. Well, now we have Space Force, so... This is true. (laughs) So they were probably just laying the groundwork for (laughs) to be able to use... uh, Do you suppose that, like, the same sets and everything, they just now use that for the Space Force offices? (laughs) If they existed, sure, but also Space uh, Stargate was filmed in Vancouver and not in the United States. So they use none of the footage from the actual place. Well, the exterior shots. Yes. Oh, there's like, it's the exterior space force office. Yes. Yes. Exteriors only. (laughs) Although um, I did also read that after sort of the popularity of Stargate, like really took off um, the, the real Cheyenne mountain complex actually like, put up like signs in their lower level, sort of alluding to the fact that the Stargate was there. (laughs) And like, there's like a janitor's closet where it was like some, you know, like do not go in here, you know, authorized personnel only like very much do not enter, but it was just like the janitor's closet. (laughs) Which I thought that's funny that they, you know, embraced it enough to sort of make fun, not really make fun of it, but just sort of incorporate it and be like, Hey, isn't this cool? Yeah, this is cool. Huh? Yeah. Just start it. It's cool. <laughs> there may or may not be an actual Stargate in the janitor's closet. You don't know, and you're not we going to. You're not Maybe the closet is the Stargate. Uh, so O'Neill uh, finally gets down to meet uh, General Hammond, who is, replaced General West, who was the general in the movie. Uh, and once again, Colonel O'Neill is very fond of reminding everybody that he is retired. Um we quickly come to understand that uh, O'Neill has a bit of a sense of humor, um, but Hammond does not yet at this point. Um, well, that... so you want to pause for a second and discuss yeah. the casting of O'Neill? Oh, yes. Are you in favor? Did you wish that Kurt Russell had decided to be on TV? I am in favor of Richard Dean Anderson. Um, I like the Kurt Russell as Colonel O'Neill 1L in the movie, I think was good for that, you know, uh, 120 minutes or so, however long the movie is. I don't know if that O'Neill could have sustained over the length of time that a TV show takes place. Um, So I like that Richard Dean Anderson, while, you know, serious and dramatic when needed, was able to inject a bit of levity to stop things from being so stodgy if you will, on a weekly basis, because if everything was just so serious all the time, every day, every week, that probably wouldn't be so fun. So I'm, I'm in favor of Richard Dean Anderson. What about you? I, I'm very much in favor. I agree with you. Um, I think he did a very good job of kind of capturing the aura mm-hmm. of, of such a character. But um, at the same time, I wonder if maybe doing the character with that sort of portrayal at the time at which it was supposed to take place was a little odd because I think they talk about the timing that in the movie, doesn't that take place like right after his kid passes away? Yes. And then the show takes place a year after the movie. 
So I wonder mm-hmm. if that character would have had time to get to making jokes and levity and all this stuff and really pull himself out of kind of dealing with that. It is it is a character choice that he made. I just to me, I thought it was a little odd when I was trying to put together the timing in my head of like, okay, so in the past year, you've been dealing with the loss of a child and your marriage fell apart, and at this point in time, you're just like, meh. <laughs> True. Uh, so from there, Hammond takes O'Neill to see the Dejafa in the morgue. Which here's a movie discrepancy for you from uh, the movie to the show. Uh, the Jaffa in the TV show have the weird pouches in their stomach. And in the movie, they were just humans. Um, they didn't have any special powers. They didn't have any weird symbiote living in their stomach. They were just humans who were tasked with guarding Ra. But these Jaffa are different for some reason. Which that's always, I've always sort of been curious about that change. You're curious who was in the meeting for that one? (laughs) Okay, so we need more aliens. We need new aliens. Where can we have aliens? Aha, stomach aliens. Yes. (laughs) What are going to do? Stomach aliens? Really? Tell me more. Well, they're not actually the aliens. They're just like holding them like kangaroo pouches. Brilliant. Tell me more. Yes. So, yeah, stomach aliens. And also Jack can operate a staff weapon. Which, considering there's one button on it, nobody in that room could figure out what to do with it. Like, the staff weapon has one button on it. You couldn't think, hey, what happens if I push this? Maybe it was like an old car. You have to, like, jiggle it just right. (laughs) (laughs) Alien technology, advanced enough for spaceships, one button gun. (laughs) That Earth can't figure out. You need somebody as dumb as O'Neill to figure out how to operate it. (laughs) Uh, So we also see now uh, Kowalski and Ferretti are back. Um, They were two of the characters from the mission on the first Stargate mission to Abydos in the movie, uh, played by different characters here. Um, Jay Akavone and Brent State are uh, Kowalski and Ferretti in the series. Uh, Who played them in the movie? I forget. Uh, I don't remember, but not those people. I should have noted that. Um, Is anyway. Is the guy from Third Rock in the Sun? Yes. Stu- Stuart. French Stuart. French Stuart. Yeah. one of them. And the other guy I don't remember. Unfortunately, I should have looked that up. Uh, so Jack and Hammond get back to the office and we sort of get a brief summary of the events from the movie just in case you haven't seen the movie. Here's what previously on Stargate. We get this sort of brief you know, rundown of the events of the movie and Hammond concludes with, so you blew up the Abydos gate, right? That was what you were going to do. You took this nuclear weapon and you blew it up, right? Uh, Because we're going to send this other nuclear weapon through because we only know the the Stargate goes to Abydos. So these people had to come from Abydos. So we're going to send another nuclear weapon through. Um, Jack then finally admits that the nuclear weapon did not actually get detonated in the gate room on Abydos. It was detonated on Ra's ship that was in orbit. And Hammond's like, oh, really now? Well, so O'Neill gets taken into holding while they decide what to do with him, I guess. I don't know, disobeying orders. I don't know what exactly he would be brought up on charges of. Um, But Hammond is not super happy with O'Neill right now because 
for all the information he has, this is all O'Neill's fault because they did not blow up the Abydos Gate. And that's all on O'Neill. Kowalski is also down in the holding, and we do a little more previously on Stargate, uh, where they reminisce about all of the kids on Abydos, and we get told about Skara, uh, who is the kid who took uh, Shining to O'Neill while they were there on Abydos. Um, and General Hammond comes in and seems to actually be having a crisis of conscience about the possibility of killing all of the innocent people on Abydos if they do actually send the nuclear weapon through. Um, yes, thank God. Uh, so O'Neill convinces Hammond to let him, Kowalski, and Freddy go through on a fact-finding mission. And Hammond's like, okay, let's get the probe from... Where was the probe coming from? That they need to wait. That thing. The place with the thing. Um, so they need to wait for a probe. And O'Neill's like, I got a better idea. Grabs a box of Kleenex and they chuck it through the gate. And everybody's like, a Kleenex? A box of Kleenex, really? That's that's going to work? Oh, okay. Um, and O'Neill is like, wait for it. <laughs> so uh, sometime later, uh, the gate wears back to life and an empty Kleenex box comes back through the gate with thanks, send more written on it. Uh, Did he have a marker with him? I... He had some sort of writing implement, um, which, I mean, it's only a year later. Sharpie could last for a year if you don't use it that much, maybe. I guess that's fair. I guess. Um, so they're given permission to go back through the gate pending the presidential okay, which obviously happens. Um, and so we're going on another gate mission to Abydos. Woohoo! Uh, so the next day, uh, O'Neill's back in uniform, so he is now unretired, and the briefing begins, And but we're still waiting for Sam Carter, who is being assigned to O'Neill's team from the Pentagon. She, <gasps> Sam is a she? She is. What, women know things? Yes. I know. She's, she's a theoretical astrophysicist. She's like super smarty pants. And the whole scene with her intro... It's like the biggest. This obviously Sorry. takes place in the 90s. And if this yes. was to air today, it would be the worst scene ever. Because, yeah. Because the entire scene is just about her joining in the pissing contest and winning. Yes. And just and the because my men are like, stop it. Women know things. Ugh, fun. Yes. So this is, this is another scene that got chopped down a lot in the the final cut version uh and thank god brett wright cut out the cringiest line of all cringiest lines and just because my reproductive organs are on the inside instead of the outside doesn't mean i can't handle whatever you can handle that line is now thankfully gone because that's just the worst thing nobody talks like that nobody talks like that ever whatever i said it yesterday (laughs) oh you did to myself wait no that doesn't work Uh, uh, so it, no, it's, just terrible. it's terrible they even they what didn't they even like allude to her being a lesbian obviously because she was like a military knowledgeable person no there wasn't much of that they just were like oh i bet you play with there's something about her playing with dolls but she played with the major matt mason doll not barbie so she's cool it's fine right like it's all good it was because they challenged her on going by Sam instead of Samantha. And she said, no, I played with dolls. That's right. Yeah. Because obviously if you have a short name, yeah, you 
are a man? I don't know. Well, why would she go by Sam if her name is Samantha? I mean, her name is Samantha. So, what other reason could there be? I I don't know. It's just craziness. So, after the pissing contest is over, uh, Samuel just sort of blurts out that he just wants to bury the gate. Because if we bury it, then nobody can come through. But Jack's like, but they also have really big ships. So, they could just come here by ship. So, burying the gate doesn't really do anything. So the team is given 24 hours to either return from Abydos or at least send a message through. And if they don't, then this time a bomb really, 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 really will go through and blow everybody up. Um, so everybody changes into uh, field appropriate gear with big, huge, massive backpacks on, which like they look like turtles, I swear. <laughs> it's like those packs are ridiculous, especially in like when you take into account how like the gear they have, like even probably five, six episodes from now, <laughs> like all the stuff that they're, they're carrying now is just kind of ridiculous. Um, so they're getting ready to go through. Um, Carter, you know, walks up the ramp and considering she spent her like life working on this and should have been on the first gate team through on the original Abydos mission, just kind of marvels at it for a minute and is staring at it in awe and wonder. And Jack has enough and just shoves her through, which is kind of funny. <laughs> do you ever wonder if in all that gear, like what the set people actually put in those backpacks? I do. I always wonder about stuff like that, like folders, backpacks, purses, like what, what is in all of that stuff that people have to carry? Cause there has to be something in it to at least s- simulate weight of some kind and to just, you know, pack it out. So I, d- I do always wonder what what's the best thing. It's filled with candy. It's all just <laughs> Skittles, packed with Skittles. Because you can always tell, like, in TV shows and movies and stuff, when someone's luggage is absolutely empty because they're just picking it up and carrying it around. Like, yeah. like, it's no big deal. When, obviously, if you're going on a trip for a week, your bag is not five pounds. Yeah. So <laughs> Carter gets shipped through the gate, and we get our first wormhole of the series. So... <laughs> Do you think when you go through the gate and are going through the wormhole, do you see that? Or are you just like, from your point of view, do you think it's instantaneous or do you, do you see anything or do you just suddenly somewhere else? Like in the blink of an eye, what do you think? Well, the, the technology officially is supposed to be what, that you're, you're broken down into molecules and then reassembled on the other side. Yes. So I wouldn't imagine that you actually see anything. Because you wouldn't have eyeballs. You, you would not have eyeballs. Although That's I did true. always wonder, when somebody walks through one side of the gate, why are they, like, flung through the other side as if, as if they were shoved through? Like, what well, happens to the aggressiveness when you're being re-put back together? Maybe just the particles get accelerated because you have to traverse a very long distance in a very short amount of time, so you have to be traveling very fast to do that. Except there are also some scenes where people just, like, walk on through. Yeah, because having everybody, like, you know, stumble and run through gets old after a while. <laughs> but I did notice in the first episode that somebody would, like, walk through one side and then they would get flung through the other side yeah. as if they were, you know, through a slingshot or something. Yeah, because if it's instantaneous, yeah, if you're, like, walking, wouldn't your stride just be, you know whatever you went through the gate is how you would come out the other side. But if you're part, but if you're, if you get broken down to a completely molecular level and then reassembled, 
I guess, who knows how you get reassembled in what order and manner. Excitedly, it measures your emotions as you're going through. <laughs> like, this person is really excited. They really want to get to the other side. We're going to get them to the other side just that much faster. Hmm, perhaps. Yes. I think that's what the gate does. Okay. Uh, so we are now in the Abydos gate room. There's what appears to be a, like a cooking fire and like pers- personal objects. And then a bunch of people pop out from behind pillars with military weapons. It's like, these are earth weapons. What's going on? And here we get our first look at Michael Shanks as Daniel Jackson. Coming casting? out and telling. Casting. Yeah. Love it. Love it. I love Michael Shanks. He's my favorite. We'll get into that later. But I love Michael Shanks. Um, He's told the story a few times about, you know, his casting for the show and like, you know, what the audition process was like and everything. And uh, per Michael Shanks, he was just doing a James Spader impersonation for probably like the first half of the season. Well, the first actually probably the first couple seasons. I think he said he was just straight up doing a James Spader impersonation. And he did it well. And he did because he got the part with the floppy hair and the glasses. And he's adorable and I love him. And then eventually he was like, this is exhausting. And then they cut his hair and everything changed. Well, every girl will tell you after a breakup. That works. It does. What about you, Michael Shanks? Is Daniel Jackson yay or nay? Um, I am a yay. Excellent. I am very much yay. I am very much a yay, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Daniel calms everybody down. O'Neal turns around and starts walking towards him. And we think they're going to greet each other. But instead, he just sort of bumps his shoulder and goes to say hello to Skara instead. Ooh, yes. Fun fact. Uh, Alexis Cruz Escara is one of only two actors to reprise their role from the movie as the same character. Only two people came back. Who is the other one? I was going to ask, do you know who the other one is? I do not. <gasps> well, coincidentally, it was Eric Avari as Kasuf, Scara's father. Oh, that's who we funny. will see in later episodes. Um, we are also introduced again to Share, which here's another movie discrepancy. In the movie, her name is Shaori, S-H-A apostrophe U-R-I. In the TV show, her name is Share, S-H-A apostrophe R-E. So why do you think that change happened? They were just like, we can't pronounce this right. Let's just I mean, it. honestly, probably yes, because I've never found an answer to that question. And people have been asking that for a while. Like, Shaori is not that hard to say. But I don't know. Yes, she's now known as Share. Maybe it's one of those things where it was just a typo that just, you know, Uh, took off. Could autocorrect? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Perhaps. That'd be interesting. She got named because Microsoft Word likes to change names. We're filling that in. Yes. That's going to be one of our, we have no idea what the answer is, so we're making it up. I like it. Share is named because of autocorrect. Yep. All right, that's the answer. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, so Sam finds the DHD, which do you know what DHD stands for? Ooh, 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 I do, I do. Me, pick me, pick me. Yes, yes, Rachel, what is the is answer? It, is it dial home device? It is! Ding, 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 Woo! we have a winner! Woo! Uh, so Sam is, like, completely astounded by it, and it's like, this is what was missing because it took us 15 years, which, what? Huh. So, okay. So her quote is, it took us 15 years and three supercomputers to MacGyver, haha, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, a oh, system for the it. gate on Earth. Which, okay, this is something that has always bugged me about, like, this movie and some, like, sci-fi stuff in general. 
how if they didn't know what the Stargate was in the movie when, you know, we the audience come into it, what were they building for 15 years? Like, what were they doing? They had no idea what it did, so they couldn't code anything. They couldn't build anything because they didn't know what it was or what it was supposed to do. But as soon as Daniel Jackson figures out how to make it work, everything is there to make it work. But they didn't know what it was. Maybe they thought it was a really giant basketball hoop. (laughs) And they were... Trying to no, I got nothing. I think I think that's probably like my biggest plot hole from like just the movie and the show in general that I have to make myself forget about. Otherwise, I'll drive myself insane. Because if you don't know what it is, how can you build anything to make it work? So Sam finally introduces herself to Daniel, and we finally get to why O'Neill and his team are back, and that you know another Gould and some Jaffa have come through the gate. And Daniel insists that no one has been through the gate on this side because it's guarded all day, every day for 36 hours. So a day on Abydos is 36 hours, which is just, you know, a little interesting tidbit to let you know this is an alien planet. So. Do you suppose um, that they stay awake for over 24 hours then? Well, I imagine, yeah, their, you know, sleep and wake cycle would be attuned to a 36 hour day rather than a 24 hour day. So when Daniel goes back to Earth, do you suppose he just cannot fall asleep for ever? Well, he's only been there for a year. So well, I think that's long enough to adjust to yeah. know, jet lag, as it were. That uh, gate lag, they call it. I mean, it probably took him a while, yeah, to readjust to Earth time, I suppose. Um so there's a sandstorm going on outside, but Daniel thinks he might be able to help them answer their question, but they can't really go anywhere right now. They're invited to join the evening meal, and we find out that the kids have been making moonshine, because of course they have been, because why not? <laughs> Which, what did they make it from? Because this is a desert planet, and like I don't remember actually even seeing any like cactuses. I mean, I'm sure there's plants somewhere, but like, what, what are they making moonshine from? That's a very good point. would be what I want to know. Uh, then, in a nice sort of callback to the movie, Scar tries to return O'Neill's lighter, but O'Neill's like, no, no, I gave that to you. You keep it. And it was like a very nice touching moment because it was a nice touching moment from the movie. So the sandstorm has finally ended and they're getting ready to head out. And Daniel's like, well, the guys who came to Earth must have come through another gate. And Jack and Sam are like, what? The gate only goes to Abydos. Yeah, the gate only goes to Abydos. They ran so many tests after they came back from the first mission and like nothing ever happened. And Daniel's like, "Ah, that's what you think. Let me show you something. I got something very important to show you. And before they head out, he's given a very, very thorough goodbye kiss from Jare, who will apparently miss him very much in the half hour that they'll be gone. Do you suppose that happens like every time he leaves the house? Yes. It's a very happy marriage. Yes. Which, actually, uh, Vatieri and Michael Shanks were actually married for a while after meeting ah. on this show. So, And they have they have a child together. So, yeah. So the They're, acting worked? They were it, method? Apparently, yes, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> so we get our first um, exterior of Abydos and the giant pyramid. So Daniel takes them from the gate room to the sort of only other location we had in the movie, um, which is the temple... I think it was a temple um, where in the movie they had found the sort of earth coordinates on the cover stone. 
Um, and he explains that he sort of kept excavating after they left and found this other chamber that they're in. And it's, this thing is like massive. It's probably a good three, four stories tall. It's huge. It's massive. There's statues and columns and the columns are all covered in carvings. And Jack's like, what is this? And Daniel goes, well, each grouping is attached to the other by a series of lines and each grouping contains seven symbols. So you can see where this is going, of course. And Jack's like, I, no, no, I don't. Please, please dumb it down for me. So Daniel explains he believes that the columns, the information that's on there, is actually a chart of a vast network of stargates all across the universe. What? What? So the stargate uh, goes to more places. Yes. Yeah, so science twins activate, as we like to call it. So uh, Sam and Daniel start going into like science mode, and Sam's like, "Really, I this can't be because we tried dialing other you know combinations of the symbols that are on the gate, and nothing ever happened." And Daniel's like, "But can't planets like move?" And then Sam launches into you know a whole explanation about the expanding universe theory about where everything is moving away from everything else. So in the thousands of years since like the Stargate was first built, nothing would be where it was. So because the symbols reference constellations in the sky with the planet then being sort of the center point where all those constellations intersect, the planet wouldn't be there anymore. Um, But so then why can they get to Abydos if, you know, the basic symbols work to get to Abydos. Why does it still work, but doesn't work for anywhere else? Now, this is the huge discrepancy from the movie. And this might bother me more than how did they build the thing to make the Stargate work if they didn't know what it did. In the movie, when Daniel figures out what the Stargate is and they dial it and they send the first probe through, Daniel is sort of, they have this star chart in the the you know, the tech room where the, all the computers are and everything. And it's sort of tracking the object as it goes through space. And Daniel's like tracking it and tracking it. And Catherine comes in and says, yes, Daniel, it's the other side of the known universe. Here, when they're talking about, so why can we still get to Abydos? Sam goes, well, maybe because it's the closest gate to Earth. Those two things cannot both be true. Abydos cannot be on the other side of the known universe, but still be the closest gate to Earth. And that bothers me. Well, isn't the known universe very interpretive? I don't think so. Because because Catherine says the other side of the known universe, not the other side of the galaxy. So her implication is that the Abydos gate is in an entirely different galaxy from us. It's not in the Milky Way. Whereas Sam's like, well, then Abydos must still be in the Milky Way. But it can't be because it's on the other side of the known universe, uh, which is not the Milky Way. Not the Milky Way. Not the Milky Way. We are in the Milky Way, so the Milky Way cannot be the other side of the known universe because we are not on the other side of the known universe. That's a very good point. Mm. But I guess we just have to let it go because that's what the show says is now the truth. So, Would you like we... to take now to play fill in the loophole? No, because I can't make it work. <laughs> Unless you ha- Do you have a theory about how Abydos can be the closest gate to Earth and also be on the other side of the known universe? There's an unknown universe. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) Oh, well, okay. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) There we go. That makes sense. (laughs) Uh, uh, Hello. (laughs) Why didn't I think of that? Mm -hmm. Um, 
So then Carter says they can use the chart on Abydos as a baseline and sort of recalculate uh, where the planets might be now, which I really don't understand, but science, science, science. Okay, sure. Why not? Basically, the Stargate can go other places. What? What? Yes. Um, So we head back to the gate room where everybody else is just hanging out, and suddenly the gate activates again which not from us, it activates from the other side, wherever the other side is. And we see the same Jaffa that came to Earth come through, and like they immediately just start firing, even though there's really nobody out in the open for them to fire at, um, which has always been a little confusing, but, I mean, they're bad, evil people, so sure. Um, so uh, a lot of the Abedonians are, you know, hurt or killed, and even our guys are hurt and killed. Um, Shari tries to run for cover, um, but she gets captured um, by one of the Jaffa and taken to uh, our Gould Lord guy. Uh, Tilk grabs Skara and asks him where he got his weapon because the gun is obviously not any sort of technology that these people should have. Um, and so Skara gets taken as well. Um, we see an injured Freddy laying on the ground, sort of propping himself up as they dial the DHD to look at the address that they're going to. Um, and one of the kids tells Daniel that Shari and Scar were taken by Ra, but Daniel insists that Ra is dead. So even the Abaddonian people think that this guy is Ra, even though Ra got a nuclear weapon blown up in his face in his ship. So it's all very interesting that everybody thinks it's Ra when it can't be. So Daniel says goodbye to the people of Abydos um, because he knows his only option to get Shari and Scar back is to go with Jack back to Earth. Uh, He tells them to bury the gate again and that he'll come back in one year with Shari. And if he doesn't come back, then they have to bury the gate forever and nobody will ever come back to Abydos then. Question. Yes. This is a thing that always bothers me with sci-fi shows. It's like, how do they know what a year is? (sighs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, does he mean an Abydos year or an Earth year? Which I mean, I'm assuming, you know, an Abydos year. But, I mean, people were calculating, you know, how long a year was in, like, you know, 14, 1500s. So there are ways to calculate that. I, I don't know what they are myself because I'm not a science person. But I'm Daniel Smart. I'm sure he could figure it out. What the Abydos year is. What the Abydos year Abydos. is. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure people of Abydos know how long a year is. There's probably, you know, festivals and things that they have created to go along with their culture that are at the same time every year because that's usually how civilizations work. So somebody figures it out and we just accept that they're right because why would they be wrong? It's their planet. (laughs) That always bugs me about sci-fi shows so much is when like an alien will come into the scene and they'll be like, you have one hour to get this figured out. Like how, what is, get, hold on. Well, there's also. Who are you? What planet are we on? And what does that even mean? Well, there's also the whole, but you're speaking English problem that oh, that sci-fi whole... shows run into. That's a whole can of worms. I don't know if we want to get into it. Uh, <laughs> oh, we will. <laughs> okay. Um, so our team goes back to Earth. Um, you know, Freddy's being sort of carried back through because he's very, very injured. And once everybody's through, we hear Samuels yell, Sam, Major Samuels yell, close the iris. Which, what does that mean? And this huge titanium sort of 
it looks like a camera aperture uh, closes up and like blocks off the gate, which the, I mean, they sure got that installed awfully quickly. And I, I like less than 24 hours, they got this thing made and installed. That's okay. Where all your hidden military funding is going. Yeah. You don't think they pay, you know, $800 for a wrench really. No, but, <laughs> um, so Daniel insists he has to go back through the gate with the team once they figure out what's going on. And Hammond's like, yeah, I don't think so, mister. He's, he's real not happy with Daniel right now. Um, but we'll see how that all goes. Um, so we then jump to another planet where there is a large holding cell full of the captives, including um, Shari and Skara. Uh, Tilt comes in and takes uh, points to Shari points to and says, Chalnok, her. Which is, again, that just really weird combination of strange alien language and English. Because <laughs> her. Why, why does he know what her means? Why, why is that a word? I don't know. Um, how does he know that she knows what it means? Yeah, how does he know that everybody knows what that means? But everybody seems to immediately know what that means. And Shari is taken away while everybody else is um, just left there to sit and ponder their fate. Um. Back on Earth, Freddy's in um, the med bay. He's unconscious, but the doc says he has a good prognosis. Uh, Jack wanders away and sees Daniel just kind of standing in the hall. And Daniel's like, I, I don't know what to do with me. They don't know what to do with me. I, he, he's kind of like in shell shock. Like, you know, this horrible, tragic thing has happened. And now he's suddenly back on Earth after being away for a year. Um, and is used to a 36-hour day. And he is used to a 36-hour day. And who knows what time it is. Uh, so Jack invites him back to his place. Um, and gate travel apparently makes Daniel's allergies flare up because he starts sneezing a lot. Um, which is always funny about how that goes away in like three episodes. Daniel just stops sneezing. <laughs> and his allergies are totally fine. Um, but apparently they were sort of talking about what happened on Abydos after the original team went back through. And he's like, yeah, they had big, big party. Big party. Which I guess that's where they first made Moonshine. Because that's what you do at a party, is you get drunk. And the only way to do that is with moonshine. Um, we also... Stuff, yeah. yeah. And so, and this is when we find out about how Jack's wife left while he was away on Abydos. Um, and I, I, I really like this little moment between Jack and Daniel. I think it does a lot of really nice character work for them as friends. So um, Daniel asks, when do I get to meet your wife? And yeah, says, pretty just, much never. She's never. She's gone. She's gone. She left um, because of, you know, everything that happened. And he's and he goes, I think in her heart, she forgave me for what happened to our kids. She just couldn't forget. And Daniel goes, what about you? Jack goes, I'm the opposite. I'll never forgive myself. But sometimes I can forget sometimes. So there we have. He'll never forgive himself what happened because for those that haven't seen the movie and don't know, um, possible uh, trigger warning for people, um, Jack's son shot himself with Jack's own service pistol is how his son died, which is a horrible, tragic thing for anybody to have to go through. Uh, For a marriage to survive something like that would take extraordinary people, and I don't think either of them were in a place to be able to keep working, especially since Jack was then called back to duty and just left, you know, months after this happened. So it's kind of understandable why she would have left because 
he left first, if you want to look at it that way. Because I think in, in the movie, the mission to Abydos was a suicide mission for him. Like, he was going to stay behind and blow himself up with the gate with that nuclear weapon. Jack was never planning on going back through. But he did. But he did. And now we get to see what happens with life after all of that. Do we ever actually have the character of Jack's wife come into the show? Yeah. Yeah, she shows up a couple times. Like, not much. Um, Two or three episodes, maybe? At At least twice. I believe, because there's that one episode where an alien entity, like, impersonates his son, which is, like, oh, that's an episode. We'll get to that one. Um, but, yeah, we do see his we see his wife a couple times. Um, so, back on the Mystery Planet, there's now this sort of harem of women in beautiful, skimpy clothing. Um, and, and this we, is where you learn that the entire mission of going to the planets and meeting all these bad guys was just to kidnap a bunch of women. <laughs> well, yes, yes, because, as we see, um, so the female airman that was taken from Earth, uh, she gets taken by the Jaffa and presented to Apophis, who, if this is not Ra, this is Apophis. Um, and she's, like, stripped naked and laid out on a table, and this other, this female Jaffa comes forward, and the ghoul symbiote, uh, like, comes out of her pouch, which is, like, it's all covered in, like, slime and goo, and it just looks really gross and Apophis is like does she please you my love so apparently Apophis is without a queen and he is looking for uh, a host for his queen which is interesting so yes Apophis has been storming planets to kidnap women so he can have a wife this is also where you learn that the aliens that are tiny snake beings have love and marriages and our royalty and all sorts of societal yes <laughs> societal yeah. things for these snake aliens yes so here's here's an, another sort of discrepancy with the movie and so in the movie the gould were depicted i mean we saw it for you know like 10 seconds right before Ross ship blew up but in the movie the gould were presented to us as the little gray man type alien like from roswell little alien dude so why are they this weird snake symbiote thing in in the mo- in the show now? Budget. Budget. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it was in that same meeting where they were talking about like, okay, we're gonna have the snake dude with the kangaroo pouch. Wait for it. Hold on, I'll keep going. Kangaroo dude, snake pouch. It's gonna be great. And then this guy is not just the host. He's just like holding it for a little bit until it's an adult. And then it has to go into a completely different part of your body. It's just weird, man. <laughs> All sorts of weird. There's a lot of weird. If, if you really sit and think about it, there's a lot of weird. Why do and I somehow, love this show? And somehow like the same people that like host these things in the kangaroo pouches cannot be the same people to yes. be their like parasite host. Yes. It's just, it's weird, Why not? Man. Why not? But anyway. Um, so unfortunately, our, our female airman from Earth is not pleasing to the weird uh, symbiote snake thing, and so she is killed. Uh, so back on Earth, um, they're sort of going through what happened in the mission, and, you know, Hammond's all like, so who's this guy? What's going on? And he's like, gods. Not, not, not god, god, but gods, like ancient gods, because there was Ra, so this guy's another god guy and maybe this is happening like 
everywhere, all over the universe, wherever there's a Stargate, this could be happening. Even though supposedly Ra was the last of his race, another movie discrepancy, uh, apparently he's not. But maybe his race was like on the verge of dying, so Ra went runway and everybody else went the other way, and they somehow all figured out what to do at the same time without talking to them. I don't know. Um, but apparently there are more there are more Ra's out there who are not Ra, but doing the same thing that Ra did. Um, so Carter has, uh, in, I don't know, eight hours or so, written a computer program that will completely rework how the mainframe calculated gate addresses, and they should get two or three new addresses a month, which there's your setup for the series. Here's what's going to be happening on this show. We're getting new Stargate addresses, and we're going to go visit them. I was kind of disappointed we didn't get a hacker montage <laughs> of figuring out calculating intense program, double click on yes. <laughs> hey! Typey, 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 No testing, it just works. Uh, of course. Of course it works, because Sam's a genius. No bugs, uh, no whatsoever. Of course not. Hammond is skeptical about this whole thing, and because while we can go out and find cool things, that now means also more bad stuff could come back through, like this not raw guy. And Carter's like, but uh, all the stuff that's out there. And Hammond's like, yeah, the president agrees with you. So more set up for the show. There will be nine teams formed to explore the various worlds that we establish contact with to assess threats and make contact with peaceful peoples. Um, O'Neill will lead SG-1 with Carter. And Daniel's like, yeah, me too. Me too. And Hammond's like, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see about that. Um, so, but his wife is out there, so he has to be out there. And then Kowalski is given command of SG-2. Yay! Congratulations, Kowalski. Yay. Uh, and then Freddy is awake, and uh, Jack just immediately jumps out of his chair and runs out of the room without waiting to be dismissed by Hammond, <laughs> which is like, okay, all right, you go do you, Jack. Um but they get to the infirmary and uh, he's inputting the coordinates that he saw on the DHD. And he luckily he saw all seven symbols, um, which, well, he really only needs to see six because the last at the last symbol is the home symbol. Um, but he saw all symbols that are important for us to know. So we know where Shara and Skara were taken, which fantastic. So we're given another 24 hours. Because, of course, everything happens in 24-hour increments. Because you need a ticking clock. Um, and we learned that the teams now have transmitters to um, send through a code after the gate is dialed and connected that will open the iris. And if they're not heard from, uh, the codes will be locked out and the iris will be sealed permanently and they cannot get back to Earth. Ever. Ever. Um, so we get our first look at uh, the Fred loaded down with equipment, which do you do you know what Fred stands for? No, it stands for field remote expeditionary device. Uh, the Fred is a six or eight wheeled remote controlled carrier for tool supplies and weapons. Often it follows after a MALP. Do you know what MALP stands for? No, mobile analytic laboratory probe uh, and immediately before SG units providing a place for cover if necessary. Ooh. So if the stuff that SG teams need doesn't fit in their huge backpacks, they can put it on the Fred and take it with them. Um, if and they have more Skittle spring. 
<laughs> they have more Skittles that they need. Um, and according to Richard Dean Anderson on the, the commentary for the recut uh, movie of Children of the Gods, the Fred was so loud, like so loud. All of the dialogue where there's a Fred is just ADR because it's like useless with how loud the Fred is. <laughs> it was just like this monstrously loud machine, um, which I find funny. Um, so we head through the gate and, oh, look, we're in Vancouver. No, wait, I'm sorry. We're on a completely foreign planet where the gate is in just this large open plain surrounded by um, stones that are sort of set in a weird sort of spiral circular pattern. And Daniel's like, this must be part of their religion because it looks important. And there are because stones. Because they're Canadian. Because they're Canadian. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes Vancouver could be a foreign planet. Yes. Yeah. It could be. It's, it's very, have you ever been to Vancouver? It's very lovely. I have not. I'm just going what I've seen on TV. It's been uh, many foreign planets. <laughs> it's been many. It's been Kansas, too. So. It's been so many things. You don't know. So many things. It's been every, anything and everything. Um, so sort of back in, in the harem, we see now Sharae gets taken by Tilk and presented uh, to our new gold. She is stripped naked as well and laid out on the table. However, the difference is we actually get a full frontal shot of Sharae. In this, which uh, here's another. Showtime. This was on Showtime, wasn't it? It really, it honestly, it was. Showtime was like, we need nudity. Um, so they were like, okay, I guess. How um, do we incorporate naked people? Okay. We, we strip the women naked, and we only show women being naked because women, women naked, women, women, women naked is good. Men naked because is bad. Because of course, this is how the weird snake alien yeah. kangaroo pouch thing chooses its next host is yes. analyzing them naked. Yes. Uh, so this was another change in the recut where they they cut out all of the nudity. We see sort of like the back of Sharae, but we don't get any like full frontal nudity because this was always intended to be a family show. And, you know, when it aired on Fox in syndication, they couldn't have the nudity there either. So what's what's the point of putting stuff in that's only going to have to get, you know, cut out in six months to air on a family-friendly network. Um, I tell you what, though, the Netflix version has all the nudity. It does. This is the original Showtime version on Netflix, folks. Hey. Yeah. Um, so we're in luck, though, if you want to call it that. The symbiote likes her. <gasps> Yay. No. Boo. Very no. big boo. Um, so the, the symbiote burrows itself into the back of her neck and... That just that does not look pleasant. She's there's there's lots of screaming and pain, and um, we sort of get an interesting close up of Tilk in this, which there's been a few throughout the episode um, where something happens and there's sort of a, a a pan over to Tilk or a close up of Tilk and he's kind of like I, I don't I don't know about this. He seems to be sort of having some doubts about what's happening and his role in things and sort of what he's being asked to do. And I just, I think that's interesting and that, you know, they're sort of setting that up already for us. Today. Uh, now it's been so long since I've watched the show. I don't even really remember the character arc that they give him throughout the whole 10 year run. Do they ever, express like when he starts to have his conflicted feelings i don't think they get into that specifically um 
if it does, it'll probably come up in the next couple episodes as, you know, Tilk is sort of being questioned because as far as everybody on Earth is aware, he's a hostile alien. Why are we allowing him on Earth? Um, but I get the feeling from, you know, what we're seeing here, it's sort of been going on for a while. Which is weird because you, you don't, I mean, what context would he be seeing that in? It's not like the weird kangaroo pouch queen thing would be choosing you know, a, a different host every week. Yeah. Weird. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he just finally is like, why are we kidnapping all these people? You know, maybe this kangaroo you know, pouch maybe. thing is not such a good idea. <laughs> maybe, you know, running around the universe and just kidnapping people isn't a good thing. Um, so we now get our first ticking clock. We, we, now have 20 hours, so it's been four hours since we came through the gate. Four hours down, 20 to go. Um, and Jack, Sam, and Daniel start walking uh, through a path that uh, one of the SG2 team members found. They're like, well, I guess we'll follow that and see where this takes us. Um, and coming towards them are a group of people that look rather priest-like. They're sort of in rows with like weird staffs that are not staff weapons. Um, and they sort of go into hiding, and Daniel's just suddenly there going, hi! And they're all like, uh, who, like, the aliens are like, um, okay. And Daniel's like, we just came through the, the thing, the Stargate. And they have no idea what Stargate is because these people do not speak English. Even though everybody else does. These ones don't. Okay, and, so question. Yeah. So, so Daniel has had his whole adventure on Abydos and discovered, yeah. oh, okay, these are descended from ancient Egyptians. I must learn to communicate with them. Yeah. I must learn their ways. And then they go to a different planet and he all of a sudden assumes like, oh, maybe they know English and just starts speaking English to them. Like he doesn't even try ancient Egyptian first. uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But he he does finally manage to get out the word Chapa'ai, which is apparently the ancient word for Stargate. And the priests are like, oh, Chapa'ai! And like bow and kneel before him. Like he is also a god um and then they start babbling some more and daniel's able to pick out um the word choose and he's daniel's like they think we're here to choose and jack's like sure yes we're we're here to choose because why not maybe you know because that simply can't go wrong right you can't go wrong um so they get taken to the nearest village which we come to know is chulak and this is where everybody is um so SG-1 gets brought into a room with, like, a feast, and it gets seated at the head of the table, and then a very loud, big, huge, deep horn. All the people kneel and bow. Daniel and Carter follow along, because when in Rome, because who knows what's going on. Um, and we see Apophis come out to present his new queen, who is Share. Dun-dun-dun. <gasps> the like, did not see that coming. No. Except we did about five minutes ago. <laughs> but she has like on this like huge like purple hat headdress thing that is like completely ridiculous. And I love it. Um, and Daniel tries to like run up and get her, but he's um, like blasted back by the hand device. And then we cut back to Earth, which this cut has always been like real sudden to me. Like Daniel's thrown against the wall and then we're suddenly back on Earth. But okay. Um and we have our next ticking clock. We are now to just under two hours. So somehow 18 hours have passed since SG-1 was taken to the throne room 
and then we're back on Earth, and it's been yeah, 18 hours. Yeah, what did they were doing that whole time? Um, well, apparently Daniel was uh, unconscious, um, because we go back to Chulak, and he wakes up in the cell with all of the other prisoners that we saw earlier, and O'Neill has found Skara, which is great, sort of. That Skara is at least there, and has not also been taken by anybody, um... And they sort of talk about, you know, can they get out? What's going on? What's happening? And Jack's like, yeah, we got like two hours left. And somehow Tilk is suddenly like right next to O'Neill without making a sound, even though he's in that big, huge, heavy armor and like grabs his wrist and looks at his watch and is like, what technology is this? This isn't ghoul technology, um, which sort of seems to be implying that, you know, any sort of technology like this is far more advanced than anything Tilk has seen other people on other planets have. Um, and he asks where they're from, and Jack goes Earth, and Tilk's like, your words mean nothing, even though I understand everything else you say, I do not know Earth. Um, so Daniel draws the symbol for Earth, and then Tilk crosses it out, which is kind of like, that's, uh, like, why? Like, Tilk, like, doesn't look happy to see that symbol there, which, I was just like, why do you not like that we know that symbol? I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, that does seem very, uh, very odd. Of, of, is it the symbols in general, or is it that one in particular? Of like, oh, we don't speak of that one. Yeah. There. Yeah. Because I mean, the people on Abydos and like you know from the movie reading and writing were like outlawed. Like they couldn't write. Like writing was forbidden to them. So, is writing forbidden everywhere? There are ghouls. Who knows? Well, otherwise, then his question would have been kind of pointless, isn't it? <laughs> like, tell me where you're from, but I don't expect you to actually tell me because you don't know how. Right. If 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 Tilk doesn't understand Earth, how do we tell him where we're from? Um. So an interesting thing about this planet: this planet has two suns, much like Tatooine. If we want to make a Star Wars reference here. <laughs> nope. The two shall not cross. No. Okay. No. Then then this this is a completely unique planet that has two suns, unlike any other planet that has ever existed in any sort of sci-fi media. Absolutely, keep going. <laughs> um, so Kowalski explicitly states that they're not leaving without Jack and his team, no matter what Hammond or anybody else says. Um, then back in the cell, this is where Daniel finally deduces that this new guy is Apophis, who is Ra's rival. Ra was the sun god who ruled the day. Apophis is the god who rules the night. Um, then we get a whole team of Jaffa entering the chamber with some other very fancily dressed people talking in not English. And Jack's like, what's going on? And Skara explains that these people are here to choose who will be the children of the gods. I always love it when that happens, when the episode title is in the dialogue somewhere. So he's like, and hey, see it? This is what we're doing. And somehow when they're choosing those people, they don't strip them naked. They're just like, we yep. want that one. Yep. Yep. Because apparently just the queen was really, really, really picky. Apparently. Um, then we also see Shari and Apophis enter, and Daniel's like, oh my god, help me, we gotta get her, we gotta get her, but Jack's like, we can't. Um, everybody's made to kneel, and there's a really interesting look between Tilk and Jack here, where Jack's like, really, do I need to kneel? And Tilk's like, yeah, just just kneel, dude, just, just kneel down, and we'll get through this, is kind of what I'm taking from this, like, just go with it and you'll be fine kind of thing, um, which is interesting. And then we see a bunch of people get 
chosen, I guess, um, and taken away. And there's lots of sort of crying and screaming and yelling. And um, uh, who I assume to be a husband and wife walk by our team and Daniel like lunges at them sort of begging to be taken. And he's like almost crying because, you know, that's his wife up there and what's going on. And he begs that something of the host must survive. And Tilk just shakes his head no, which um, basically means Shari the human is dead to <laughs> him, which no. is very sad. Um, these people that are in front of us do not choose Daniel. Instead, they choose Skara. <gasps> so Skara gets taken now as well. So all the people who are chosen get taken away and Apophis orders his Jaffa to kill the rest. Um so we see all the Jaffa line up as everybody scurries to try and get away. And this is where we get our first look at this guy that I've taken to calling the Cro-Mag Man, who he's in a lot of shots for some reason. He has, like, no lines, but he's just, like, super tall in, like, fur. And he's got, like, the weird heavy forehead and, like, long hair. And he's just, like, from this point on, he's, like, everywhere in this, like, show. Like, he's always just, like, right there. And it's like, who are you? Who do you know to like be this person I don't know it's just it's always been one of the things that like I've always noticed whenever I watch this episode is like there's Cro-Mag man it's just I don't know it's really His funny agent was really working for him that day apparently maybe they thought he was going to be somebody else who knows um so everybody's like you know running to like try and get away as the Jafal sort of line up and like get their staff weapons activated and O'Neill's like, I can save these people, help me. And like turns to Tilk and is like, help me, I can save them. Like, help, let's do this. And Tilk's like, many people have said that before. And then turns and fires on his own Jaffa, but you are the first, I have believed. So something in Tilk has switched and is like, this is bad, this is wrong. I need to help these people that have been taken prisoner and I need to make things right. Um, so Tilk fires on his own people. He, you know gives O'Neill a staff weapon and they, between the two of them, they just mow down the rest of the Jaffa that are standing there, probably wondering what the fuck is happening? What is going on? They're confused. They don't know what's happening. Um, so they just stand there all helpless. Like, because what else are they going to do? So at this part, I would definitely like to incorporate the, I have questions <laughs> part of the episode because number one, if Teal'c's line is, many have said that, and you're the first one, I believe, I would love to see other cuts of other occasions other where they just randomly go to other planets and kidnap a bunch of people, and someone someone is like, oh, I can save them, help me, and Teal'c's just like, nah. <laughs> you're yeah. not the chosen one, I don't believe you. Yeah. Nah. And then he proceeds, but something about Jack O'Neill. Yeah. He's like, aha. I found. But the other thing, too, is you know, in this particular episode, I don't know if it was also due to like the cutting room floor or whatnot, but there's absolutely no, there's nothing that happens in that episode to make Jack O'Neill stand out as someone who could actually like save people. The whole time he just like stands there with, you know, a defiant look on his face, Mm -hmm. but that there's, there's nothing that actually happens in this particular segment that if I was on the fence of like going against everything I've ever known in my entire life to switch sides, that would make me help this man do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I do wonder if it maybe has something to sort of going back to the whole watch 
thing and the technology thing because every other civilization we run into, well, not every, but most of the civilizations we run into on the show are not nearly advanced as we are now, as we are presented. They're, you know, sort of middle ages, you know, renaissance maybe kind of thing, but something like a digital watch indicates a level of technology and understanding um, that, you know, those other people probably didn't have. And, but also with the way Jack is dressed, Jack looks like a soldier, if you want to look at it. And the fact that there's three of them in like the exact same clothing, there's Sam, Jack and Daniel all wearing the exact same thing, which must be a uniform like the Jaffa. So maybe he's just hoping that those little clues do mean this is a guy who can do something. And did they also find, I imagine when, you know, SG-1 got taken prisoner, they probably, you know, they took their guns off them because they had guns, you know, sort of in the feast room. And then when they're in the prisoners, they don't have their guns anymore. And, you know, Tilk saw those weapons both on Earth and in the Abydos gate room. So the fact that these people also have those weapons and he knows those weapons can kill people because he saw some of his fellow Jaffa get killed by those weapons. So maybe not by Jack specifically, but, you know, the people in the gate room on Earth were dressed like Jack and they had these weapons. And here's this guy who's also dressed like that and has this weapon. He must be able to do something then. I mean, that's fair. That is a good point. Did they, Did I fill in the hole? I think you did. Yes! I am smart. I do know things. <laughs> You've won the game show. You filled Woo! in the hole. What did I win? What did I win? Respect, man. Respect. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, so they kill all the Jaffa, and then they blast a hole in the wall in order to get everybody out. Um, and, you know, they start sending everybody through. And, you know, Jack's the last one through, and he looks back, and Tilk is just looking around and, like, sort of shedding his armor. And he's like, what did I do? do this is bad and jack's like come on let's go until it's like i have nowhere to go because he, he can't go home after what he did they'll know you know this is him he can't just stay here and go to his home on chulak he is you know persona non grata now he's done he's gone if he stays he will die and jack's like for this you can stay at my house so i guess tilk's going back to earth Woo! with everybody which that'll be interesting. Um, we get our next ticking, ticking clock. We have just under one hour. Um, so the group are making their way, you know, back to the gate. Jack introduces himself. Tilk explains that he is Jaffa and that he carries an infant form of the Gould in his pouch. And if he removes it, he would die. Which, okay, that's interesting that this thing you is know, responsible it's funny about for his how life. He- how he puts it though is he said if he takes it out he would eventually die that is true he does say i would eventually die but how long is eventually exactly how long is it would he just like die like a normal person well we will find out later in this in, in the series oh what stop it <sighs> there's stay tuned. more there's more stay tuned um so a ship appears from uh we, we assume coming from Chulak uh, and it appears by the gate platform and a ring transporter drops down with Scar and his new quote unquote family um, along with the other Gaul, including um, Apophis and Share. 
Uh, the ship then spots the refugees in the forest and opens fire on them. Uh, Tilk and Jack try to take it down with their staff weapons, and, you know, they get a few good hits, but it's not really doing much damage. And then here comes Kowalski to save the day with a rocket launcher, because that's what everybody needs, a rocket launcher. It was probably in that huge, you know, backpack. <laughs> or was it on the Fred? The, the very no, it was in the backpack. With the it was skittles. in the backpack? Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, so Apophis, you know, gets the gate dialed and everybody goes through. Um, and our refugees scurry up the hill and Kowalski confirms that Skara was with the people who went through the gate. Um, unfortunately, we don't get to see the address. Um, this time that was dialed, but we do see... Jack run up and try to reach Skara, but his eyes glow, which means Skara is also now gauled, and he also blasts Jack back with the all-purpose hand device. So Skara is gone, and Jack is once again very sad, because his other son is now lost to him as well. Um, the next ticking clock time is up, and Major Samuels is like, we need to lock these people out, like, right now. And Hammond's like, just, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to believe things are coming. Um, Another wait for it. Wait for it. Um, so there's a battalion of Jaffa coming up the path behind them. Um, Sam and Daniel get to work dialing the gate, which I'm not sure what calculations Daniel had to make and why it took him so long when he supposedly worked it out before they left the, the gate area when they first got there. But it takes Daniel a while to, like, flip back through his notebook and find whatever notes he made himself. Um, so as he's dialing, uh, we have a quick jump back to Earth, and Hammond's like, all right, let's seal the gate, lock out the transmitter. Um, when finally Daniel gets the last symbol encoded, and the gate is dialed and connected, and Hammond's like, wait, stop, don't lock them out just yet. Um so the iris is closed, but not, you know, like permanently sealed shut. So Sam sends the signal through and runs through the gate, not really knowing if they're going to make it or if they've already sealed the, you know, the gate permanently. Um, luckily, they haven't. So uh, Daniel starts ushering all the refugees uh, through the gate behind Sam. And here we have cro man again, throwing rocks at the Jaffa because that's all he knows how to do. Fantastic. <laughs> yes. Um, so at this point, you know, most of the refugees get through closely. There, there do appear to be a few casualties, um, but most of the people are through, um, and all our people are through except for Jack and SG2. And there's more Jaffa coming, um, so we're being sort of flanked from all sides, and they're getting really close to the gate now with us. Um, we see Cro-Mag guy choke choke out a Jaffa, just basically put him in a sleeper hole, maybe break his neck. We're not sure. Um, and one of our guys is injured and Jack and Kowalski are sort of dragging this guy up the steps and they stumble very near to where uh, this dead Jaffa now is. And we see the symbiote that was in that dead Jaffa's pouch jump out and go into Kowalski like it did with Chare and presumably Skara. So what does this mean? We'll find out. Um but finally, everybody gets through the gate. The iris is sealed, and we hear a few thumps, which we presume to be Jaffa, who are now dead, because they've been disintegrated against the iris. Um, and Hammond is very confused, because there's dozens of weird people now in his gate room, and he's like, what 
is going on, what has happened. Um, and, you know, Carter explains that, you know, these are all refugees and that they can use the gate to send these people back to their homes. And, hey, look, we have a Jaffa with us, too. And Hammond's like, you have a what? Do you know who this man is? And Jack's like, yes, he's the man who saved my life. So suck it, Hammond. <laughs> um, of course, he only says that with his face. Of course, he only says that with his face. Yes. Um, but and Jack wants Tilk to join SG-1, which do you think that's a smart idea to have a Jaffa on your gate team with you? Would you After, want like one? meeting him like an hour ago? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I bonds mean, are made. They, they see that they say that the most uh, intense relationships are made in the heat of the moment. Or what's the line from speed? I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. They've been through a very intense, intense experience together. Yeah. Um, but also presumably, you know, Tilk, I think, you know, Jack is able to do Tilk has been through the gate to many planets before. So he is, if he's somebody who has been out there before he would, you know, be an asset to when we go to those places too. Right. Yeah. And I mean, he really doesn't have anywhere, anywhere else to be. He has nowhere else to go anyway. Yeah. Um, so there's something up with Kowalski. Cause he's like, Oh, my neck, something's wrong with my neck. Yeah. You got a snake in your neck, dude. Like, come on. Um, then they start ushering all the refugees away. Our debriefing will be at 0730 and we get our nice hero shot of SG-1 at the bottom of the ramp with the gate behind them. And it's it's very lovely. It's like, this this is the show. Here's what the show is. It's these four people and this device and they're going to go out there and do awesome things. Um, they walk away and then we get the weird Kowalski walking down the gate, staring straight down the lens of the camera as his eyes glow. <gasps> The end. And that's where our episode ends with Kowalski's eyes glowing and a bunch of refugees in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado. Which I would love to see the rest of that episode, them trying to just communicate with all those different people. Yeah, because how many languages are being spoken right now <laughs> in there? And I, I, Dan, I mean, Daniel speaks a lot of languages. I don't know if he speaks that many. They really should have brought back some character in like season two. That it was just someone that they could not communicate with and they just could never send home, but they're still there. You know, like Tom Hanks in the terminal. They're just stuck there. Just just, just every now and then in the background as we're walking through the corridors, there's just another person just walking down a hallway behind them. <laughs> just wandering around. So that's our pilot. So what do you, how do you think this works as the pilot of a TV show? You know, I thought it was very good. Um, in terms of transitioning from the movie to a TV show. Because it's, it's interesting when you go from one medium to another, because usually when you go from a movie to a TV show, it's usually with the, with the air of like, this is a really great idea, but let's expand on this and, you know, let's explore this world and maybe, maybe change this thing. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a different uh, director, producer, whoever, so I have a slightly different vision, whatever. It's different when you're going the other way around from a TV show to a movie because it's basically we, we love these characters. We just want to see more of the same thing. Yeah. Um, but, but when you're starting out with a TV show going or starting with a movie going to a TV show, it's, it's more of an opportunity to have a different kind of vision, but I think they did a very good job transitioning from one to the other quite 
seamlessly. Yeah. Considering it was an entirely new cast. Yes. Well, with the exception of Alexis Cruz. <laughs> with the exception of two people. <laughs> with the exception of two people, one that movie are not, have not yet seen. That are not staples of the show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, hey, we found this thing, and it goes to an alien planet. And then the show was like, what? It goes to other planets? It's just I mean, the, the easiest idea ever. It was like a slam dunk with that one. I love it. Yeah, I mean, that that was the whole purpose, like, behind, like, Brad Wright and Jonathan Glasner um, were like, you have this thing that can travel anywhere in the universe. You should go to those places. You should go to other places. <laughs> like, that. that's how the whole thing started. It was like... You have, you have the best plot device ever. Use it as a plot device mm-hmm. and make a TV show. Um, so we and got a one out of it. And they did. Yay. Yay. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. This has been SG1 Season 1, Episode 1, Children of the Gods. If you have any comments or feedback, you can reach us on Twitter at SG underscore rewatch or on our email at woo w-o-o s-g rewatch at gmail.com and we'll see you next week for episode two the enemy within thanks everybody bye bye